Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello everyone, I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Lawyer Review is Clancy Bounds. Clancy is a longtime friend and incredibly talented medical malpractice attorney. He's a tough and thorough litigator and has an incredibly successful boutique medical malpractice firm. Clancy is the founding partner of the Orlando-based law firm Bounds Law Group. His practice focuses on litigating complex cases involving significant injuries caused by the negligence of hospitals, physicians, drug and medical device manufacturers, as well as large corporations and insurance companies. And I'll give you a bit of background. I have got got to read it because Clancy's an impressive guy. He's been a practicing trial lawyer for 28 years. During his career, he has litigated cases in multiple states, including Florida, California, Arizona, New Jersey, North Carolina, and Georgia. He's licensed to practice law in five states and has been admitted to to practice in multiple federal jurisdictions. Mr. Bounds is an accomplished trial lawyer whose practice involves primarily medical negligence litigation. He is a frequent lecturer to legal associations on the subject of medical negligence and has been listed as super lawyers rising star in the area of medical malpractice litigation. He is AV rated by Martindale Hubble, recognized as part of Florida's legal elite, business review top rated lawyer in PI and MedMal law and part of the top 100 for national trial lawyers. Mr. Bounds has obtained many multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements for his clients, including his first million dollar verdict at the ripe age of 30. Clancy graduated from the University of Florida. Uh, Can't say I'm in favor of that as as a Seminole, but uh, got his bachelor's in political science in 1990 and thereafter obtained his Juris Doctorate from Stetson University College of Law, where I got my LLM, so good, good for that. Uh, I've seen Clancy in action, and I can tell you he is one of the best I've seen at his craft. Clancy, welcome to Trial Law Review. Awesome to have you on today. Thank you for joining me. Oh, I enjoy it. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. So before getting into all the law stuff, uh, I know we both share a passion for fast cars. What about that's appealing for you? You know, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, of people our vintage, you and I are roughly the same vintage. You know, we all had those posters on our wall as, 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 you know, young teenagers, you know, grade schoolers, middle schoolers, you know. And, you know, one of my favorites even back then was the 930 Turbo. And I always thought, okay, well, one day, you know, I'll be able to afford one. Well, now, you know, now, now I can and now I do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it all goes back to then, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's why you like the music from when you grew up um, and the things that influenced you or caught your eye or, or made you look twice. And, and so it just translates forward to that. And I think the same is true with other people with music or, you know, with art or with sports or with whatever else was their thing back then. It, it, it often translates to adulthood. Yeah, 100%. My, my parents told me that my first word was car. We had a neighbor down the street who was a car fanatic. And I just remember seeing all those new cars he would bring home and, and loving the car, just looking at the car and getting into the car and smelling that, that new car smell. It's, it's never left me for whatever reason. And, and I still still love that to this day like you. So definitely can identify that. All right. So uh, I know that you started your career out as a medical malpractice defense lawyer representing physicians and hospitals. Can you talk about your experience on that side of the table and then what led you to represent 
injury victims instead? Was there a specific case that sort of made you flip the switch and say, hey, I got to I got to go to the other side? You know, that side was in, 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 in retrospect, an excellent training ground. In, in fact, in my you know current firm and, you know, all my lawyers, um, we were all former partner level people at the big men mal defense firms. Um, that I saw in action, that I had cases against, that I liked, that I thought had some some semblance of compassion and empathy um, for people. And, you know, on, on that other side, though, the, the people that kind of, I was a partner, young partner level guy when I left that side. Um, the people that rise to the top of that business, in my experience, have a certain personality trait, right? Um Maybe they're not entrepreneurial and that's why they stay over there. But, but a lot of them, I don't want to you know, disparage them at all because they're, they're, a lot of them are very, very good people. But in this realm, in this theater that we find ourselves in, I, I call them mostly the true believers, right? Um, I was never one of those. I, I remember talking, you know, as I became older and more experienced as a defense lawyer, I would get a new case in and I would look at it and I'd go, this is a disaster. How did this happen? And you know, what are we going to do? And, and back then, I did a lot of work for a fund company called PPTF, Physicians Protective Trust Fund. You know, they were infamous for millions in defense, pennies in tribute back in those days. And I remember calling an adjuster, one who many people who watch this will know, and saying, "We got a real problem. We got to resolve this." And and it was an incredulity of what do you mean we have to resolve this? And this attitude of it doesn't matter whether our guy or our gal did it right or did it wrong, we're going to defend it because that's the business we're in. And I, and I think that attitude of not doing the right thing when the right thing absolutely needed to happen, not only for, you know, the poor person who was injured, but, but you know, for the kind of the doctor who didn't really realize what he or she was getting caught up in and what it was going to mean to them. And, and so I think th those first experiences with that are really what kind of just turned me off to the whole process. And then truthfully, you know, and, and maybe there's some arrogance showing here, but, you know, listening to some person who by virtue of having a four-year degree and God knows what becomes an adjuster somehow and is now telling me how to do my job as a professional, um, that was off-putting. And the straw that really broke the camel's back was a trial uh, Russ Bobo and I tried in, in St. Lucie, Florida, where there was a, 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 a horribly brain-injured child. It wasn't a, it wasn't a you know, birth trauma case. It was, a, it was a failure to diagnose group B strep um, in, a, in a little girl. Um, and, and the doctor, was recalcitrant and unsympathetic. Uh, and uh, we tried that case, shouldn't have tried that case, never should have tried that case. Plaintiff's lawyers on this side probably didn't do the best job and we wound up winning it. Uh, should have never been won, should have never gone to trial, should have been paid. And I, I'll never forget that doctor after the jury verdict came back and the, this level of hubris uh, and arrogance and I'm right, nose in the air. I sent a resume out to a plaintiff's firm two days later and I was gone within a month. So there really was a story for me. It was something that I think evolved into, I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And uh, ever since I've been on the side. Yeah, I did med mal defense work right out of law school and I, what I saw was everybody that was a partner in that firm were very jaded and that no case had merit. And I guess that's what you really have to tell yourself if you do that work, that you really have to truly believe in that and be, like you said, a believer to justify in your mind doing that kind of work. Uh, and then I did met, uh, workers' comp defense work and it was, you know, even, even worse, worse, really. Yeah. And I thought... <laughs> thought, oh my God, I can't, I can't do this for the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, made this switch to getting into the planning side of things instead of, instead of doing plaintiff's work. But that's where my heart always was on the other side. I, I always felt like I was accomplishing nothing. I was a, a cog in the wheel versus actually 
doing something that could positive, positively impact and change people's lives, which is what you get to do every day. And now I get to be part of that when the case settles. And so does Synergy, which is really kind of an awesome thing to feel like every day what you do is going to have a positive impact versus just grinding something out for an insurance company. Yeah. I don't know how they do it I, I, anymore. I, yeah. I look at these young lawyers that are across from me and even the guys who are older and, you know, some of them have been tremendously successful when they're sitting atop a very large pyramid. You know, I think they probably go, this is great. Uh, others who are, you know, at a four or five man defense firm slogging it out for a couple hundred bucks an hour. I ask myself, why? Why would you do this? And I think a lot of them ask themselves that too. I think the better spirited ones do at any rate. Yeah. So what for you is at the heart of the passion for being a trial lawyer? What, what you know, motivates you to get up every day and fight for people that, that need your help? Um, you know, it's funny. We, we, we talked about that and, and I've thought about that question. And um, part of it is, I, I think just my, my personality likes what it is. It's right. You know, why, why do you like to play tennis? Why do you like to play golf? Why do you like to be a football player? Or why do you like to do anything that's competitive cycle in your case? Um, I, I, you know, I think part of it is, is this desire to be in a cognitively competitive field. Um, I think that's where I started. Right. And then as you I aptly pointed out, you, you, you start representing people and you start making a difference in their lives. And um, you realize that it's, it's not just money, but it's like real change for people or real help for people um, or trying to make something right that was, you know, really, really wrong. And that feeds something in people. Um, and, and, and so you, you have this combination of, I get to kind of be competitive. Um, and I also get to really do some good, uh, and really help people who really genuinely deserve it and need it. And, and you have these two things in your soul satisfied, um, you know, and, and where else do you get to do that? You know, but in a profession like this one, where you get to kind of do that, you get to get your hands dirty, you get to get in there, you get to scrap a little bit and you get to help somebody to boot. I think that's where, where my, that's well, that's why I probably won't stop doing this until I'm frankly, probably past the point where I should have been doing it. Like some of the guys you and I know, <laughs> you know, it's why. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, I've seen you in action. Uh, and I know how you get into the detail, the cognitive side of it, but I also see how you've brought the emotion and passion for helping the plaintiff. Uh, and, and I've seen some of the amazing results that you've gotten. Are there a couple of cases that stand out in your mind that are the most or most important or influential that you've handled and why so? Yeah. I mean, um, I, you know, I, there's, of course, the one I mentioned when I was a defense lawyer that changed the trajectory of where I was going um, and helped me see from a different angle than I see now how much harm can be done by good lawyering um, to the other side, right? When, when it's not just and it's not equitable. And so I think that, 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 that case was important because it taught me being on the right side is important, but that's a lesson over here too, right? Um, there are people that I've looked at that I said, you know, this person just did the best job they could and they, they don't really deserve to be in this thing. Uh, and, and it, 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 even now when I'm on this side, I, I tried it to, you know, unless I'm treated otherwise, I try to be kind, um, and considerate, uh, and, um, professional towards the doctor or the nurse or the healthcare provider on the other side. Um, I don't think any of them, with a few exceptions, ever started off to cause a problem or hurt somebody. Um, I think there's a few of them that I've probably sued multiple times that one wonders if they're not perhaps in the wrong profession. Um, but, but, but still, we're not intentional in their conduct. And so that first case taught me those things. 
Um, on this side, you know, there have been some um, fiscally tremendously successful cases that made a giant difference in some of those folks' lives. Um, but not necessarily for me are they the most important ones. Um, you know, there are some that stand out, um, one in particular where I got very, very, very close with, you know, the, the young client. Um, and that's where I really learned empathy and where I really learned sympathy and where I really learned how this really affects people's lives because it was the first time I had spent so much time with the family. And so I think that one stands out to me um, most prominently because it was where I really learned how to do this at a deeper level and not just at a technical level. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, the, that empathy piece, you know, of course, you know, I learned uh, firsthand being involved in a personal injury case myself after getting struck by a car while cycling, you know, and, but what I've realized is that it's really hard to understand unless you've actually experienced that. And really it's, it's more for most people being compassionate. And that's one of the things I talk about with every person that joins Synergy. I actually talk to them about my case and use it as an example of, Hey, my case was, you know, pretty, pretty insignificant compared to some of the cases that we are involved with, where you've got people that are severely brain injured or paralyzed or burned horribly or, you know, worse yet killed. And people are dealing with things that are so tragic and overwhelming that, you know, we have to have compassion and empathy for those people and make sure that we're doing everything we can possibly do to fight as hard as we can to, to, if we're doing a lean reduction, get that lean as low as possible. If we're doing planning, making sure it's the best possible plan to take care of that person well into their lives because of that, you know, that it's so meaningful what happens when one of these cases resolves for that person's future. It makes a massive difference. And, you know, you and I know the cases. We can, we can see the case where it makes a difference. Um, you know, you, know, you almost have a feel for it from the beginning sometimes on our side. Yeah. Is, are, are there certain cases that stand out to you that you've handled, for example, that would have changed the way healthcare is delivered? Because it seems like you guys doing the med mal work do have the opportunity to change what might happen, um, you know, through the course of, of the delivery of care. Because I'm thinking through a case I'm working on with uh, Ming right now, which involved uh, an issue with a, a an air transport in a helicopter um, and a, a, a failed intubation. And, you know, I, I just thought about that and I was thinking, man, you know, that that just shouldn't happen. Yeah. You know, th th there are. And, and where I think lawyers that do this kind of work are, are do truly make a difference is in what, what I'm gonna call process cases, where there should have been a process and there should have been things done. And either they'd never been through the process before this hospital, this emergency room, this doctor's office, this whatever, right? And, and a tragic event ha happens and, and, and is the lawyers, us, right? We're, we're, we're essentially doing a root cause analysis. How did this event come about? How, what combination of factors, what combination of bad luck, what combination of, you know, curiosities came together to produce a tragedy? And, and, and I think when we, we mean the plaintiff's lawyer and his, his or her team, they dig into it and they start taking the depositions and they start putting the pieces together. Um, I know from talking to people that that process and showing the hospital usually 
what happened and why and why it was wrong makes a difference because I have personally been told and told, hey, we changed our process because of this case. And, and you know, on a, on a kind of a microcosm level, I think if you sue a doctor, um, I think if it doesn't make an impression on that physician and they don't change what they did there or maybe pay a little bit more attention or next time they're confronted with something, they handle it differently. Well, then there's maybe something really, really wrong with them. Um, but, but I do think that what we do um, makes a difference because at the end of the day, it's about accountability um, and, and responsibility uh, and um, the act of requiting somebody um, that you did harm to. And, and, and I use that word requite because it's different than compensate. That's what you get for working. And it's different from an award because that's what you get when you win something like the lottery. To requite somebody is, is to make up for some loss or harm you caused them. And it's an affirmative act and it's an, it can be an act of respect. It can be an act of love. It can be an act of um, appropriate contrition. Um, and, and that's why I use that word, right? Uh, and not the others. So I, I think healthcare without us standing in the breach, I think where there's not as many lawsuits and there's not as many people um, willing to take on cases, those states, the medicine is kind of wild, wild west. When I talk to people in California and I talk to people in Texas about what happens in those places, I'm pretty astounded. And I think part of it is because there just isn't anybody holding anybody accountable. Interesting, that word, requite. I, I had not heard that before, so I learned something today. You, you educated me on something. You know, we do use those terms of settlement judgment award and it's not quite appropriate because of I mean the fact of the matter is is nothing and I learned this in in my own case nothing makes you whole again nobody can put me to the the day before this happened you know nothing can replace the the memory I lost of a week in a you know medically induced coma or missing you know my son moving into his college dorm because I was still you know in the hospital you know, so those things that are taken away from you are, you know, now, even now the, the normalcy of eating for me still isn't normal because my mouth had to be fixed because of all the damage that was done. So all those things, it's, it's that idea that the pebble in your shoe that you just can never get out. Um, and, and people don't understand that what trial lawyers do is never a lottery. You know, I, I've, People that don't know it, I always say, you never want to meet me in my professional capacity because it means something pretty awful is happening. Nobody wants money that way. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And, and, and you know, when I when I talk about this requite, you know, usually I talk about it, I'm talking about it to a jury, usually. And, and you know, I thought a lot about those words we use, right? You know, you know, there's the David Ball set of, of, of language that, you know, it's very interesting and, 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 and I'm sure very effective, you know, make up for what you can make up for, you know, and but what you can't make up for you, you know, whatever. I, I forget the litany of words that, that, that those guys have formulated. And they're very good. Um, but as I really searched through it and, and tried to understand what we're doing, right, is ultimately requiring six people to make a defendant requite when the defendant wouldn't do it of his or her own accord. And that's what I tell them. And I tell them and I explain what it means, right? Because a lot of people aren't familiar, you know, with the, the phrase. Um, it's an old phrase, right? You know, kind of biblical, really. Um, and um, that's where our philosophy comes in. And that is, is to, to make up for a harm or loss you cause to somebody as best you can in the way our system allows. So that ties into something else I wanted to ask you about. So when you're handling a catastrophic medical malpractice case, what are the top three things you do to 
connect with what the clients have been through to, to be able to convey to the jury with the same compassion and empathy uh, that we're talking about, tell their story uh, so that the jury understands what that person's left with after what they've suffered. Sure. Uh, you know, I pointed back to a case that was influential in, in the way I do things. And, and it's, it, it was that case that I learned. And, you know, other lawyers have talked about this. And I, you know, some, I think in my more cynical, younger, more aggressive days of like, a, you know, right, whatever. Um, if you go to somebody's home and spend time with them and you see it and you smell it and you feel it and you look at things, um, then you have this sensory experience that you never get sitting in your office. And, and, and those senses, right? Um, knowing what somebody's home smells like. And, and by the way, that can be pleasant or it can be very unpleasant, right? If you have a client who's incontinent of urine and their living space or their home smells of that or it smells of medical equipment or drugs or devices, they all, all these things have a smell. A Hoyer lift has a smell because of the hydraulic fluid that causes it to operate as a sound, um, it has a, a space, it takes up space. And, and what I've learned, and, and truthfully, and you know, this sounds like maybe it's just, oh, you know, some lawyer, you know, coming up with something. Gosh, if anybody young watches this, that's a young lawyer and they haven't done this. When you go there, all of those senses, the sight, for me, the smell, I have a very sensitive sense of smell. I don't know why, right? The taste of it, they give you some coffee. Um, I ask people when I go, um, did you keep anything, you know, if they've lost somebody? Um, what's theirs here? Is it still here? Why is it still here? What did you give away? Who did you give it to? And and. And most importantly, what are the things you decided to keep and why? Um, I was at a man's house. I'm trying the case for him. We mistried it, you know, in June because we couldn't get a jury because of COVID. And I went to his home several times and uh, I said, what did you keep? And he goes, well, I, I kept most of her clothes in her closet. Okay. Why? Because they smell like her. It's 58 year marriage. They smell like her. I like to go in there and I like to smell it because it makes me think she's still here. What did I do? I said, can I go in? He said, sure. I went in. You know what it smelled like? It smelled like roses. She wore a rose perfume. Um, still smelled that way. Um, I asked him, I said, where do you keep her other things? And he goes, you know, there's a drawer over there that's got all of her just junk in it. It's just junk. I said, can I look? And I went and I looked. And I, and I, I said, do you, do you mind? And he's like, no, 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 just do it. He didn't think anything of it. And I rifled through there and I found all these little possessions. These little things that for whatever reason, right? You know, we all have a junk drawer at our house and it's filled with stuff we can't bring ourselves to throw away because we think one day it might be useful or we just can't part with it for whatever reason. And this drawer was filled with those things. I'm filled with them. And I, I, I said, can I keep some of these things? I'll, so I'll give them back after the trial, but can I keep them? He said, of course. And as I was pulling them out, he's like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen that in 10 years or 20 years, or I didn't know she still had it. And, and he and I are going through this together, right? Where we're, we're going down memory lane. And he was a particularly thoughtful guy. Not all clients are thoughtful. Um, and, and, and in those moments, that's what I learned. You see, you have to go to their home. That's, that's number one. 
and not not to prepare them for anything not not go there for the reason of we're going to get you ready for your depot we're going to go over your answers to interrogatories or we're going to do this you're there for a visit for whatever you can learn by seeing hearing smelling tasting how they live and that's whether they've lost somebody or you're there with the actual injured person you know it's the day in the life without the videographer there. It's the, how do you do these things? How does a Hoyer lift work for you, right? It's going, so one visit, two, shut up and observe and listen and explore. And, 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 and depending on what kind of case it is, maybe, hey, you know what? Take me through, because let's actually go do it together. Let's go to the grocery store. And you got a para and they drive themselves. And, and you, you, you don't videotape it, you don't, you don't do anything, but you experience it just like you were their brother or their sister or their mom or their dad or their son or their daughter. Because then when your sorry ass is at that trial and you're dragging butt and it's time to talk about damages, you're not just going off of the day in the life video that maybe you watched or maybe you didn't you're going off your actual experience of hearing it and seeing it and smelling it and tasting it. And when you've done that, gosh darn it, you're standing in front of six or seven people in some jury box somewhere and you're talking about it like you know what the hell you're talking about because you do. Well, that's the only piece of advice I've got. I'm, I'm going to play that back for everybody in my office because everybody here uh, at Synergy needs to listen to that because that's that's so beautifully said. Uh, really appreciate you sharing okay. that. I, so I want to ask you about a specific case that I was involved in with you um, uh, because it was memorable to me. And I know that you've handled several of these. It was uh, a case where a young woman had become locked in in the hospital due to some some medical errors. And we got the opportunity to get a get a lot of money put back in our pocket by getting a lien waived, which was memorable to me. But the, the case itself was just such a, just the thought of somebody becoming locked in, in a hospital setting because of, you know, someone missing something. Those cases seem like, and, and I know that you've handled several of these, seem like they're just such a, just such a difficult situation that the families find themselves in, whether it's, you know, a a woman like that, or, you know, I know you handled one for a younger man. I mean, those things are just incredibly tragic. I, I, I wonder if there's anything significant about handling those cases for you or anything that you've learned from those cases. Um, what I've, what I've, what I've learned from those cases, I think in what, you know, obviously you were involved in, both of them and understand kind of what what was involved but what i what, what i there was lots of takeaways right the medicine the ability to help somebody the the loss that's not comprehensible to you and me right i can't comprehend what it's like to only being able to communicate with your eyes or through technology now you know technology can't comprehend it I'm not sure I could handle it. I'm not sure I would have a preference for something else. Um, but professionally, and, and I think what I would say to, to people who handle cases of that ilk, of that magnitude, financial magnitude, is the very tremendous, very scary sense of responsibility I had the moment the thing was done. I mean, and I'm talking settled, right? You know, okay, and so now you have this number um, and it's more money than you've ever contemplated resolving a single case for, right? I mean, um, and, 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 and there's, you're like, okay, so I know my client is there and intact cognitively and their soul is there and i know there you know other than a newborn babe there's nobody 
almost seemingly in some respects more helpless. Um, and how am I going to, or what am I going to do to protect this person who mentally can protect themselves, but can't execute the mental um, process physically? Can't raise their hand and say, this person's stealing from me. Can't raise their hand and say, I need, you know, whatever, right? Can't pick up the phone and, and call somebody to ask for help. What do you do? And how do you do it? And, and I, and I want to say something about my good friend, Rich Newsom, who I am very fond of and respect a lot. And he is the one that I went through, went to the first time I resolved one of these for some advice at this level. And I said, what did you do and how did you do it? I don't even know where to start, right? Because you can't just annuitize money at those levels. You can't just trust it to family members at those levels. You can't just, um, you know, give it to some fiduciary at those levels. What do you do and how do you do it? And, and how do you put in multiple safeguards and multiple things so that they're protected, that this person, they put, you know, you made the recovery, now what, right? And you've been always instrumental in the now what part, whether it was a small case or a big giant case. And, and, and again, somebody's watching this one day. Uh, my, my advice is if you have a really, really, you know, significant recovery, you know, and we're not just talking a million dollars here. I mean, that's significant too, but we're, you know, um, you need to be, um, you need to steward your client through that. And, 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 and because it doesn't end, in my mind, it didn't end. And I still, by the way, both of those folks, I, I am in contact with regularly, checking in. Everything okay? Everything good? You know, do you need anything from me? Do you need to talk to me? Um, and they both appreciate it a lot. Uh, and the answer has always been no, everything's good, thanks. Um, but more importantly to the, to the young lawyer, the older lawyer, the lawyer who finds himself where I found myself several times is what do, how do I, where do I even begin to handle this? Um, it's bring in a team, right? You bring in you guys, um, you bring in, um, you know, fiduciaries, right? You know, you know, whether they're investment fiduciaries or they're, bank trustees or their, you, 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 you develop a team. So there are multiple people that something has to go through before this person can be potentially taken advantage of because at those levels of numbers, um, you just can't settle it and move on. I, I don't think you can. I mean, maybe you can from a standard of care standpoint, but I don't think is, is a lawyer who really cares and who, frankly, by the way, just did very well for themselves that you, you should just fire and forget those. So I think that's what I would say about those cases was the most learning. And I, again, I learned it from Rich Newsom um, because he had handled a lot of, you know, very large cases where he, he took upon him himself an additional responsibility to assure that it was in good hands. Yeah. And I've seen that with Rich firsthand and it's great advice. You know, I, and I think really it's any significant recovery, you really have to have a team, um, you know, to, to be able to make sure that that client ultimately is protected, whether that's, you know, as you said, bank, trust, company, fiduciaries, in addition to structured settlements and trusts. And I mean, all the things that, you know, potentially um, are needed depending on the, the situation in that case. Um, so uh, switching gears for a sec. So you, you've built this really uh, successful law practice. What's one tip you would give other trial lawyers that's part of your secret to success in building your practice? Um, you know this, we really do one thing. You know, we, we sue doctors and hospitals and medical malpractice cases. Um, and we concentrate on that. You know, we've gotten out of our lane a few times. We do some police shooting cases, correct? We just got hired in an LA police shooting, believe it or not. 
Um, Brent likes to do those. He enjoys them. They're hard. They're no fun. Um, but um, we try to just find something that most people don't do. And by the way, there's a lot of those things out there, right? It's not just MedMail. Um, and, and, and you learn it and you know it and, and, and you just do that. But as Ira Leesfield once very wisely said in a speech, and, and, and Ira's a good friend and a, and a mentor to me, make sure people know what you do when you only do one thing. And, and if they know what you do, then when they get that thing, you're who they come to. And, and, and so while a lot of younger lawyers who may watch this, maybe older lawyers, I don't know, um, my advice, if you're going to, step out of your firm, whatever that thing was you were good at. Or maybe you want to do something different. Find that thing. Figure out how to do it. And then make sure people you know how, that, that you're the guy or you're the gal that does it. Just like you, right? I mean, you, you figured out a need and, and became a specialist in it and an expert in it. And, and now you're the only person I go to frankly. I mean, I'm not going to anybody else for these issues. I'm just not because number one, you kind of invented it. And the guy who invented it is the best guy to talk to it about. Um, and, and, you know, I think through the years, those people have existed, you know, um, some of them have branched out over time because they got young partners who wanted to do something else. Um, so my advice, if you're going to open a firm, do one thing and do it really, 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 really well and then tell people that that's the one thing you do. Yeah, great advice. I, I agree wholeheartedly, found that niche for myself, both with Synergy and my law practice. And like you said, I mean, when, when you can say you are the expert, you, you wrote the book on it, or you know, you, you've, you become the thought leader in that area, that's, and that's why you know, Synergy markets the way it does, because I always believe yeah. that the way to do it is Hey, demonstrate your your expertise and, and knowledge in this subject, and people will come to you when they have challenging issues that they need to address. They will, and we do to you. You know, I mean, that's what we do. So, so um, couple couple more questions. Sure. Um, given your specialty in medical malpractice, do you wind up co counseling a lot of cases, and do you try cases around the country? I'm I'm thinking, you know, there may be sure. lawyers who listen to this who who might need someone like you to, to work with? Yeah, we do. Um, I'm not, a, you know, um, if you'll forgive the cynical phrase, I'd rather have half of a big case than none of it. Um, so I've never been one of those people who wouldn't co-counsel with other firms, whether they're out of state or in state. Um, we do it. Uh, I finished, a, you know, we settled a case in Kentucky Sunday night with some lawyers out of Los Angeles and they bring me in to do the medicine in their medicine heavy cases. You know, my job is to come in and tell them, is it a case? Yes, no. Hire the experts, take the defendant doctors, do the experts, do the other side's experts, and that's all I do. I don't, you know, I don't argue, I don't do motions, I don't do openings or closings or damages. I only do the medicine. So we do that a good bit. We have four or five of those going on in California right now. Uh, got one going on in North Carolina right now, um, you know, and then I have, you know, out-of-state counsel who, who I know from AAJ, you know, or some of the other organizations to which, you know, we belong that say, hey, this is a knowledgeable guy down there. Keep me out of trouble. Help guide me through this. Right. Um, you know, a, a lot of times I say, listen, I'll just help you. I, I don't need money for this. I don't need to sign up in this deal. Just tell me what you need, right? Uh, oftentimes, you know, they got to get pro hoc in or whatever. And then I say, what do you, what do you want me to do? Right. You know, so we do some of that, not a terrible amount of that. Most of what we do is, is doing, you know, some of the lifting in the case in other places. So we do do it. Yeah. So a bit of a self-serving question, but uh, what are the most challenging or difficult issues you see today when you're resolving cases? Sure. I mean, it, it, it's easy. And, 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 and I don't mind answering it here because I would say it anywhere. Um, the, 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 the two biggest challenges uh, are related. One is net to the client and two is, is the handling of the lien. 
period, full stop. And, and they, are, they are intimately related because any savings on the lien goes to the client's bottom line. Any savings on the lien may go to my bottom line. I have a rule, and, and you know this, you've heard me say it, I don't get more in, in fee than my client gets net. It's my rule. Um, and and if, the, if the liens are big or the costs are high, I know I'm probably going to reduce my fee to make sure I don't get more than my client gets. That, and there's a lot of, you know, I'm not alone in that philosophy. I think, number one, it's a good business philosophy. Um, I think you invite trouble when you get a bunch more than your client does. I know there's a lot of firms that do it, and I'm not saying they're wrong or shouldn't at all. I'm just saying I don't. Um, and you and I both know, you know, I've had cases where your activities really meant me making something on the case, uh, or, or, or making sure that the client was ha happy or got something. So as I see it at the end of the day, you know, the biggest, 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 biggest hindrance to resolving cases is the medical needs. And, and there's, there's two parts to that. And what we've started doing at mediation is educating the adjusters on what a, re, what a lien actually is. Uh, we do not anymore only send defendants the um, uh, conditional payment letter or the lien from the medical health provider. What we do is we get off our butts and we get the bills from everybody who was involved, doctors, hospitals, and we see what was actually paid, what was actually paid by the insurer or what was actually paid by Medicare or what was actually paid by Medicaid. And we add those numbers up, the actual paid lines. And, and that is what we use for our lien. Now, oftentimes we get pushback from the adjusters at mediation, and you've probably seen this, but well, yeah, but the, it only says six grand. And then I have to tell them very unfortunate stories of, yes, once upon a time, I, I relied on the conditional payment letter and then sent Medicare a giant settlement and somebody went, oh, we better check this out. And they found another couple hundred K um, for the final demand. Um, boy, that was a tough lesson learned years and years ago, which then you took over. And frankly, after about a year, we got them beat back. It was a Medicare thing. And, and, you know, I wound up getting a fee thanks to you, you know, years later. Um, so so I, I, I think that's the single biggest thing. But, but making sure you don't rely on conditional payments letters uh, because you can get in trouble. The other thing is, is making sure you don't rely on what the lien holder tells you. Now, you don't have an obligation to kick that sleeping dog, right? If it's Humana and they send you a low number, that's Humana's problem. And they're very unlikely to figure out the difference. Uh, but when you really dig into it, you know, there, it's a double-edged sword, right? The, the specials drive cases sometimes. And, and if you look at humanity and you go, well, that don't seem right, but okay, good news. But if you go get the bills, then you all of a sudden have a real appreciation for it and your numbers shift and you're sending them to them. And, and by the way, we just, we don't send them the lien letter. We send them, here's the God dang bills that says what they paid. And, 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 and so that's what we do now. We don't send them conditional payment letters, Medicaid letters, any of that stuff. We send them, here it is. These are the things that were related. And here's, here it says Medicaid, pay, Medicare, pay, Humana, pay, whoever, right? This is the numbers and this is what we're boarding. Doesn't matter what the lien says. Because at the end of the day, I got to get, I, this money's not going to my clients, going to them, right? Sometimes you get a windfall, as you know. You know, sometimes you get a windfall and you do that. So it's never going to hurt you to do that. Um, but sometimes it might help you to do that. Critical piece of advice you just gave about the not relying on conditional payment letters, because only a final demand binds Medicare. And, you know, there have been many law firms that have been ensnared by that little trap and some to, to their, uh, you know, detriment where they wound up having the DOJ going after them because of failure to pay. So, you know, it's, uh, it is a, and we just, you know, we eat that the times that happened to us, we said, yeah. we're not taking a fee until, and, you know, and then you were able to negotiate it down and we got something out of it. Um, it was actually a fairly significant amount. You may not remember it. I know you've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these, but, 
I mean, it's, it, you know, you know, I, again, young lawyers watching this, older lawyers watching this, do not rely on the conditional payment letter because particularly if you get a significant settlement, I think there's probably a threshold. Who knows? I've never seen this in writing, but my, the only times we've really gotten a bigger number on our final demand letter than we got on our conditional payment letter when was, was when the settlement was significant. And I, I, I feel certain there is some number trigger out there for them. And it would make sense, right? If they get a final demand letter and they say the case settled for three million bucks and their lien's two grand, it would be very logical for them to go, hey, why don't we check this real quick? Yeah, something because we may be giving something up. Yeah. Yeah. I would, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it, so. I, I don't know of anything official, but it does, you know, make a heck of a lot of sense that there is some way for them. I mean, you know, the the fact of the matter is, is now that they get all this you know, specifically Medicare, they get all this data that's reported by the defendant um, at settlement because it's required by federal law. They they really have a ton of information at their fingertips through this system. I don't know how sophisticated they are or, you know, how much manpower they have to really look at it all, but clearly they're catching more and they're actually, you know, becoming more aggressive in their, their enforcement of all of that. So... One thing I would like to ask you about, and it might be good for this discussion, or you can cut this out, whatever, and, and we can talk about it later. But what, what we have seen lately, or not lately, but we've had some experiences with it now, where we settle a case piecemeal. It's a Medicare case. You know, we settle, uh, we, you know, with, you know, four, four defendants, get a final demand letter, you know, send a final demand letter, get it, pay it right? There's three defendants left. And then you settle with those three, right? And then you send Medicare for a final demand letter and they say, oh, no, files closed, zero. I'm like, yeah, but it's the same case. No, 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 files closed, zero. You can't get a lien from them, right? You can't get a number from them. And, and, and we're like, so what we've done is we've said, okay, what was the lien? What did we pay? What do we think is left over that might be the maximum amount, you know, that we may have to cover out of this? And, and so, for instance, three days ago, I, I, you know, finally somebody from Medicare called me and said, what is this? Why are you doing this? And I said, because it's the same case, it's the same date of loss, and I got more money for it from other defendants. And she goes, oh, I go, well, how do I find out what the lien is? She goes, we'll send a final demand letter and we'll just send it to you. I said, yeah, but I kind of need to know, you know, what are we even going to base this on? And she says it will be, I guess, a percentage of what was left unpaid and we'll just recalculate. Okay. But so, so I guess my point is, I think there's lawyers out there that may, may think that if you satisfied the Medicare lien on the front end, you're okay. And in talking to this Medicare person, she goes, oh, no, 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 you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Because they're going to get reported to them another settlement and all of a sudden the client's going to have something opened up. You're not going to have told the client and there's going to be a problem. Right. So that, that, that's the I guess the last thing along these lines, you know, that people may want to know or maybe something that you bring to their attention. However, you guys go about doing that is don't think because you paid a Medicare lien in a multi settlement situation once you're done. Re-report it. Um, yeah. yeah, you got to you, You've got to get a final demand, even if, you, you know, that may trigger that. They go back and look at it, or they may just say, no, it's closed. If you get- We almost say zero every time, yeah. by the way. But as long as you get that zero final demand, you're okay. Yeah. It's just, you know, if you just ignore it on the second settlement and that gets, that information of the settlement gets reported to Medicare, you know, you're, you might get something a year from now going, hey, this has been referred to Treasury. You didn't pay. That That's, yeah. that's worst case scenario, right? Nobody wants to be in that situation with the DOJ then involved because, you know, it was referred to treasury and it goes to the DOJ if, if it's not paid within a certain time period. So that, that is very good advice that you just, you just want to make sure that you are protecting yourself or you, you, you know, have a, you know, a partner like Synergy that, that handles that for you. You know, some firms do that, you know, you guys have a more of a, boutique practice, if you're handling a ton of files, you may just, you know, have one that slips through the cracks and that's the worst possible situation for you. If, if you're the one, you yeah, know, you're writing a check yeah. with interest yeah. is what you're doing. Yeah. Right. And, and the, the DOJ is going to go, yeah, we don't care. You screwed it up. Here's, here's what you owe. Yeah. Pay it right now. Yeah. Um, 
and you're going to pay it right then. Yeah. I would. I don't well, or worse yet, it, it becomes, you know, one of those situations where the client had moved on to an advantage plan and these MAOs have become very um, aggressive in their recovery uh, efforts. And so, you know, when they, um, when they uh, decide to pursue, they're, they're doing that um, for double the lien amount because they've got the law on their side now as it relates to that. And, yeah. you know, there, there's a case out of the 11th Circuit where, you know, the, the 11th Circuit looked at it and said, yeah, it's, it says shall. It shall be the double the lien amount. And so, you know, these Advantage plans have used that to go after PI law firms, but also the defendant insurers, too. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, you just don't want to miss anything, really, whether it's ERISA, Medicare, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, FIBA, military. It's just not worth the risk that comes with a lot of this for for most personal injury law firms. It's just better to either you have a process internally or you turn to a company like Synergy to make sure that you are doing everything you possibly can to avoid any liability. I prefer the Medicare Advantage plans because they're easier to negotiate yeah. with. You can actually get somebody and they'll actually negotiate maybe beyond sometimes just the, you know, the fees and cost reduction. Yeah. Yeah, they're different. I mean, you know, the although some of them have become a little more aggressive and they're saying, well, you know, we don't have to offer you compromise and waiver like Medicare does, but yet we get the benefit of the Secondary Pair Act. And then we're like, well, no, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You know, that, that yeah. doesn't work, but... Yeah, and, and we, you know, we we uh, we got that one day, and and I just wrote an nasty letter and say, here's, you, you know, this is Medicare, Medicare's laws apply, and this is what I get, and if you don't want to do it, I'll see you in federal court. Don't matter to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they, you know, then a supervisor got involved, and it was done. Right, we got our forty-two percent reduction. We paid the money we were supposed to pay, and we were done. Um, but it was just, you know, sometimes. The, the line, I'll call them the line adjuster. You, you're like, how do you not know this? This is, this is your job. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes, um, I mean, it's just, you know, these recovery contractors are in particular are very dogmatic about their approach. We had one recently where it was a, a, a Medicaid case where Medicaid had paid some of the dollars, but then a Medicaid HMO had paid most of it. And the Medicaid HMO said, you know, we want full reimbursement. Well, Medicaid itself had basically said none of the care was related to the personal injury claim and said, we have no lien. And I, I had to get involved and threatened to, to go to the Division of Administrative Hearings and litigate this issue through my law firm with them and said, hey, either way, you're subject to Allborn. You need to reduce this lien based on the proportion, which basically means because of how much the damages were, you know, yeah. you, you get zero. And finally they capitulated, but you know, you had to, you had to go through that, you know, all these techniques to get them ultimately to agree to what they should be doing based on the law. It's just, they, they interpret the law for their own benefit, yeah. which makes sense. It's like, okay, you had a strategy meeting and how to get more money. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, and, and that's fine. I mean, I, you know, I get it. I, I understand, but, but doesn't mean I'm going to, you know, I'm not falling for it is usually what I tell them. I said, look, there's lawyers you can probably push around pretty good. I'm just not one of them. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, push somebody else around, you know, the, the, this is, this is going to be a low yield, you know, scam on me, but um, yeah, I'm afraid of Medicare. I'm afraid of Medicaid. You know, I, we don't mess around with them. We hire you guys when we have a problem. We hire you guys to, you know, do the MSAs where, you know, we're still doing them. I know a lot of firms kind of don't. Um, okay. You know, yeah. we recommend them. We, we get the sign offs. Some clients do them. Some clients don't. I got the sign off. Not my problem. You know, it's kind of the way I look at it. So. Yeah, that's that's good advice on that point too. So, all right. So, last question, uh, yeah. since it's trial lawyer review, this is open ended. Whatever you want to talk about, what's your view as a trial lawyer? Um, it's funny. I th th this occurred to me last night. Um, in my world, as you know, for medical malpractice, I have to vet cases. And, and essentially have an affidavit of merit before I can bring them. And so in my lexicon or my experience or, you know, my world, 
I have to know I have a legitimate valid case before I file. I was watching the news last night and I was watching this uh, very fiery lawyer at a very big press conference where they're representing the gaffer, the guy that holds the sound bar in the unfortunate situation in that Rust movie yep. with Alec Baldwin. Yep. And, and, and the first guy to file suit isn't the woman who got shot in the chest or the director who got shot. It's a guy holding a sound bar 35 feet away who is claiming intentional infliction of emotional distress or negligent infliction of emotional distress because he witnessed this. And I am not saying that it would not have been horrible to witness. I'm sure it was. But as I was listening to this lawyer and the amount of hyperbole, hyperbolic speech about this travesty that had befallen his client, um, I worried about that kind of activity and, and, and its recurrence weekly. Um, and, and some of the other commercial speech that, that happens in our um, profession, that one day I, I fear um, will be the demise of it. Uh, and and, and I, you know, my viewpoint probably isn't super popular. Um, certainly isn't popular against a certain segment of the legal profession. And I'm not saying what they're doing is wrong. But what I am saying is, 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 is be mindful of what you're doing and the extent to which you are doing it. Um, because there is a golden goose to be killed, you know, to, to borrow from a fable. Uh, and, and watch what you do so that you don't, ruin everybody's ability downstream to seek out some semblance of justice and recompense. Um, because if things keep going the way they're going, um, that could be a problem. Uh, and so if you're watching this and you're a young lawyer, you're thinking about advertising or marketing, m my advice is be wise. Um, and, and, be deliberative and be quiet in the way you go about not only marketing, which is a different animal, but trumpeting your cause for an individual client. Um, because your grandstanding or your trumpeting is not actually probably doing your client any good at all. So, that's my that's my view, and, and and I'm sorry it ends on kind of a negative note, but it's something that I that that, that I've been thinking about, uh, and then something that was crystallized last evening watching this lawyer on a soapbox. Um, you would have thought it was his client that had been shot in the chest and and, and died, and it wasn't. Well, I'm impressed that you're still watching the news. I I've just gotten away from it because it seems like it is so negative every time I turn it on that I just felt like I I had to get away from it, particularly with with COVID sure. stuff. But you know, I mean, the idea of of being careful about uh, torturing or twisting the scales of justice to the point where people don't believe in the system anymore, I think is a it's a great point. I don't think it's negative. I think it's it, it, people have to understand that are in this profession just that it, there can be putting your ego in front of um, what is best for the people involved. Um, you know, that I, I've seen it happen. It's unfortunate. Yeah. And, you know, that that's just the reality. And you got to make sure that that, you know, you, you speak about those things, because I think it is important to say those things that you've said. Yeah. So uh, that's it. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, they want to work with you, co-counsel with you, need your help on a case, what's the best way to get in touch with you? They can just call the office. Um, it's 407-644-5151. And uh, just say you'd like to chat with me. Uh, you know, I'm not a take a message, I'll call you later kind of guy. If I'm here, I'll pick up the phone. Um, if I'm not, <coughs> I'll return the call because I'm pretty good at doing that too. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we would love to work with anybody, the highest and mightiest to, you know, the brand new young lawyer who wants to learn something or needs some help. Um, that's part of the best part about our side, meaning plaintiff's bar, is that we help each other and we talk to each other and we have a collegiate uh, uh, organization. Um, you know, I've never called a lawyer on our side for help or advice or information who they haven't called me back and said, what can I help you with, ma'am? Um, that's pretty cool. You know, I can tell you on the defense, it doesn't happen that way. Um, and uh, so I've lived by that. Uh, you know, there, there, there are people who give more than others. That's every organization, but, but, but by and far, um, this side of the fence, if you will, um, is, is really populated by pretty special, pretty good people. Absolutely. hundred percent. So we will include your contact information in the show notes. So if anybody Great. missed that, they will have the ability to get in touch with you and, want to thank Clancy for being my guest today on Trial Law Review, and we'll see everybody on the next episode. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Law Review. You can find more at triallawreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.